0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Teamcast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The Teamcast is a show where my colleagues, Goman Ruiz, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things mission-critical teams. Mission-critical teams are teams of 4 to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you want a mission-critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the TeamCast. My name is Dr. Preston Klein, and today I am joined by Eric Hipke and Jim Cook, who I'll introduce in a moment. Today's team cast will focus on the question faced by every mission critical team, which is how do we help our youngest members understand the criticality of their work before they have any experience? How do we transfer wisdom in the absence of sorrow? So, how do we help people who are very new to the job, young doctors, young firefighters, young special operators, young law enforcement, understand before they know anything how serious the job is and the consequence for failure or the consequence? for winning. Today's TeamCast will be a little different than anything we've done before, but we're going to break it into three parts. The first part, part one, will take us back to 1994 and the South Canyon fire, which then smoke jumper Eric Hipke who's joining us today, survived, but 14 other wildland firefighters did not. We're going to talk a little bit about the experience of that fire and, and the sort of after effects of it. Part two takes us back to 2008, where I first met Jim Cook when he brought a group of wildland firefighters to the Wharton School as part of his job as the U.S. Forest Service Training Projects Coordinator in order to develop the first formal leadership program within wildland firefighters. This included taking on the challenge of figuring out how to help young men and women in the fire service rapidly understand the complexities and dangers of the job without having first suffered a loss. And then part three will take us to 2011, when I flew out west to observe what had become the Storm King Staff Ride, which discussed the lessons learned from that tragic day. And so before I continue, let me introduce our two guests. Our first guest is Eric Kipke. He began his career in 1984 as a volunteer wilderness guard in Washington State. He graduated from the University of Washington in 1985 with a degree in geology. In 1990, he was selected to join the North Cascade Smokejumpers. In 1996, he transferred to the Boise Smokejumper Base, where he would spend the next 15 years. The last five years, he spent working on the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise before retiring in 2015. Eric, great to have you on the TeamCast. Thanks. Great to be here. Appreciate that. Our other guest is Jim Cook. Jim began working in Wildland Fire Service in 1975. For 18 years, he was a hotshot crew superintendent. In that job, he led one of the most highly trained operational assets used on large fire suppression actions. He's worked on more than 500 fire incidents in 22 states. In 2000, Jim became the training project coordinator for the U.S. Forest Service at the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho. In that position, his primary focus was working on a national-level initiative to establish the first formal leadership development program for wildland firefighters. Jim holds a bachelor's degree in geography from the University of Utah and a master's degree in instructional systems design from Boise State University. He retired in 2012. Jim, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Good morning. Looking forward to our conversation. Thanks very much. We are going to start this off,
0: part one, by taking us back to 1994, to the South Canyon fire. And I'm going to ask Eric, in his own words, to recount the events of that day, just to give our listeners a sort of context on the things that we're going to be talking about and how that evolved into what would become a very famous staff ride. And as part of that, Eric, if you could explain things like what do you mean by hotshot and what do you mean by smoke jumper along the way, that would be super helpful for many of our audience.
2: I'll start out with uh, some definitions, I guess. Smoke jumpers parachute into the fire, it's a, meant to be a rapid response, get there quick, put out why it's small sort of organization. And hotshots are uh, kind of the highest form of firefighter, you know, with the very skilled group, more like the Marines, I guess you could say, firefighting you can really get in there and do a lot of hard work. Then Hell Attack, we'll talk about them. They come in by helicopter. They can repel into the fire like smoke jumpers, you know, you get to a fire fast. And they also can organize crew shuttles and gear shuttle. You know, they usually get a helibase base close to the fire and then they can shuttle stuff in water You know, bucket drops, stuff like that. And then you have engine Mm -hmm. people that are, that's pretty self-explanatory, little three, four-person crew on an engine. And they can roll up to a fire and put it out that way if they can get to it. And then there's hand crews. And then one of the things I should point out for folks
0: is that if you want more information about this, a book was written in 1999 called Fire on the Mountain that recalls the south canyon fire by john mcclain and so what eric's about to sort of describe if you want more details can be followed up in that book
2: we won't get too much into the weeds about what happened before the fire i don't think but there was some dysfunctionality going on put it mildly within that district in that area and that kind of set us up for failure you know, not by spooling up a lot of forces quick enough to get them in. They're kind of late to, to recognizing that, you know, they kind of had a, on the order of like every 10 years, they'd have a, a big fire season okay. and then it'd be kind of slow. So, you know, you get all change over in personnel and stuff like that. Having said that, it's our responsibility as firefighters, once we get to the fire, to paint the picture back to dispatch about what's going on. And if it's if we don't have what we need, we need to tell them that. If everything's going great, can tell them that. I mean, dispatch is just a point on the map, and they're sending firefighters to it. So it's our responsibility to protect our own lives once we get there. So, in
0: fairness, in this, and just to give us some context here, these folks are seeing a fire about every ten years, a big fire, and but there's a lot of turnover in the administration.
2: Sure. Sure. Administration and just personnel and everything like that. I don't want to get too hung up on that. I mean, that was just a general sort of of thing that was going
0: on there. The reason I think it matters to our audience is because as, especially in special operations, where you're seeing us move from a wartime footing to a garrison or peacetime footing, you're seeing a lot of turnover in administration and folks that that have been in combat who know fires. And so if you're being led or organized by folks, and this is true in the FBI and others, that may not have as many reps, then communication becomes more burdensome because you have to explain some things they may not understand. Correct. Yes. yes. And so if you take us back to that day, when did you first arrive on the scene? What was the impetus between you specifically getting there that day?
2: Well, I got there the day of the blow up on July 6th, jumped in that morning. The fire had actually started on July 2nd, four days earlier, and it wasn't until the next morning that it was detected on July 3rd. They had sent a load of smoke jumpers in that afternoon to go to that fire on July 3rd. You know, just norm, that's a normal sort of thing, send jumpers into a hard to get to fire. It was off of I 70 near Glenwood Springs, about five miles away and about half a mile away from Canyon Creek Estates. And so it was in an area that was already designated. I've learned all this later after the fact that there's was in an area that was designated full suppression if there was a fire noted in there, and they just didn't have the personnel to do it. An engine had rolled up earlier, and it kind of sized it up that afternoon and said well we need smoke jumpers it's way up on the top of the hill it's going to take a long time to hike to and that's what smoke jumpers are good at go and throw some jumpers on that and get a helicopter for water bucket work and so they dispatched and they're doing their final checks on the plane about five minutes out and dispatch turned them around to go to a rolling wind-driven sage flats fire that ended up with engines and crews and stuff like that so in my mind, they kind of squandered a chance to get put this thing out small and send them to a fire that they weren't really that effective on, frankly, in my opinion. But so Eric,
0: here we are. We're in Colorado. You're you're getting a notification that you need to deploy you and you'll tell us how many smoke jumpers you're gonna jump into an altitude. Where the terrain is at about 6,500 feet, you're going to carry a certain amount of equipment. I want to get a sense of what that is. And it's July in Colorado, so it's not—it's probably not chilly. When well, you're first getting that announcement, and you're packing everything up. What do you know about that fire that day of the sixth, where you're loading up with your crew?
2: We had got in late the night before off of a, a fire that we jumped on July fourth, and so we—you know—we got in around midnight. And so we only had like, you know, four or five hours of sleep and, get, and got to the base and we were rehabbing our gear and we were waiting for the pilots to show up because we'd ha- got notification that there was a fire call. So we thought, okay, great. There's a whole stack of requests. We're going to go out there and hit a bunch of emerging fires, get them either small. This would be fantastic. And we got a little bit of a briefing between all the gathering our gear together and everything. I might have missed some stuff, but, uh, you know, we knew a cold front was coming in, but it wasn't at that time. It, you know, there wasn't like some big wind event coming with it. It was more like, oh, you know, we might get some moisture out of this thing. That was the word we were getting in the morning. So we loaded up and eight of us, you know, suited up, got on the plane. And we were a mixture of North Cascades, jumpers, McCall jumpers, and Missoula jumpers. And we were just from all over the place. It was kind of thrown together for this. So already just in that plane load, there was a mixture of un- people that we are unfamiliar with. Okay. On our way, we flew over the exact sort of thing I'm talking about. Uh little fire discovered it on the way and we we're circling it. And I was just like, Oh yeah, you know, I was one of the first two people in the, you know, I was like, Oh yeah, we're gonna drop this one. This is looks looks like something we can catch. This would be great. And they just turned it in and sent us. You know, usually when you find a fire like that, dispatch will sometimes just throw you on it because you're there and it's quick to get to. And then they said, nope, we're gonna keep going to this other fire. And we got to that thing and it was, you know, over a hundred acres, just smoldering around, is on top of this ridge, a spur ridge coming off of Storm King Mountain, I learned later, you know, just off of the interstate, but we we're kind of circling looking at it. And it was just all from the top down, hardly any smoke at all. Uh, just wonder, what are we doing on this thing? At first I thought I didn't realize that there were other firefighters on the fire. So I started looking. And then we were they were in contact with somebody on the ground. There's already jumpers on the fire. And there's somebody holding a streamer in the jump spot for us. And man, that when you see that, you know, all the what are we gonna do planning the fire sort of thing? How are we gonna get off of this? What you know, tactics and I couldn't come up with any tactics. I was just lost looking down at the sink. What are we There's no anchor points. Usually you want to start from a low spot on the fire. It'd be great if it had already burned all the way to the I-70. That would be perfect. You just would have trucked, you know, firefighters up there, and you'd just go up either flank of the fire until you you had it surrounded. That's just basic, you know, anchor, flank, and pinch. That's how you surround a fire. But when there's no anchor point, it's kind of becomes a little more difficult to figure out, especially when there's no fire, apparently, just smoke everywhere. So anyway, we we jumped in, the eight of us, and I believe his sunny Archuleta was holding the streamer, and he said, "Okay, you know, gather up your gear." And our gear can weigh about with our parachutes and reserves and all that stuff. It can weigh up to about a hundred pounds. Uh, you know, along with our cargo we jump in then the cargo comes in on the plane flies about 200 feet off the off the deck and throws our cargo out with little 16 foot parachutes set up for two jumpers each your tools and water and sleeping bags and food are in each one of those boxes so it, it gets over over 100 pounds and so we lug all that stuff over to what's become h2 a hell spot's already been designated and said well we're going to fly your gear up so we just gear up for the day you know and that's about 35 pounds of gear you're carrying with your food and water and stuff like that and they'd already mentioned somewhere along the line they'd said oh well we might be trying to burn out so carry a lot of fusees and fusees are um, basically road flares that you'd have the highway patrolman put out to that's an easy way to describe that so was carrying a bunch of those so at this point when
0: did things start to turn where you started to realize this isn't what I thought it was or something has changed
2: we got all our gear we're all set up and we went over to the fire's edge right on right on the ridge top and met the IC the incident commander Butch Blanco and he gave us a quick little briefing it wasn't really about weather or vegetation or anything like that it's just kind of like well you're going to be Going down this flank, Don Mackey's going to be in charge of you guys. That was the jumper in charge of the first load that came in on the 5th. And while why we were talking about that, actually, a, a little flare-up happened on the east side of that, that ridge. And so we just kind of ran over there and uh, dug a line around this thing and then came back. And then we just started down the west flank, working with the Missoula jumpers that had been there with Don Mackey's load. The first time I kind of started questioning what was going on is we're heading down into this brush. Up on top, the brush was just about, you know, waist high, if that, two, three feet, you know, like that. And it wasn't wasn't very far going down that, where all of a sudden the brush is over your head and, you know, maybe 100, 200 feet down, it's like 12 feet tall. What, What we do is when we're the firefighting, you send chainsaws first they brush out everything, you know, they do all the cutting. And so they'd cut everything and then we follow behind with what's called swampers and just swamp out. You carry the the brush and, you know, and we have to pick up this pretty big stuff and they'd cut it into sections and just stuff it into the, off the line. So about basically five feet on either side. So t- 10 feet wide. Okay, And down the middle of that, you dig down to mineral soil. Like a hiking trail, yeah, though so, it's a very crude hiking trail, just enough so the fire, if it creeps up to it, it won't cross that. And that's what we were doing, and man, when that brush started getting tall, that's when we started you know looking amongst ourselves and grumbling and, and saying, "Wow, what are we doing here?" And we were getting further and further away from our safety zone. There was a designated safety zone up on H1 which was up that initial ridge we started up, which didn't look too bad at the time because it wasn't, you know, there wasn't hardly any smoke or or fire or anything like that. And we thought, well, you can get up to that. But as we were getting further and further away and going down that west side, it's getting very steep and we're getting further away. Oh, I guess I should uh, say what a safety zone is. Safety zone is an area where you're supposed to be able to go to if the fire starts taking off, and be able to survive it without putting up a fire shelter. It's okay. supposed to be okay. Uh, you can put a fire shelter up if you this basically this pop tent of uh, foil. I guess I'll call it for for the listeners if you're not familiar with it, and it kind of reflects the heat from a fire. They're not meant, or back then they weren't meant to. Repel direct flame length. It's just to reflect the heat from a fire, and you can survive in that. If you're doing that, you've really kind of screwed up. If you have to just deploy, you're down to your last chance then. And the escape route is pretty self explanatory. That's how you get to the safety zone. And it has to be short enough that you can get to it, or else you don't have it. (laughs) You don't have an escape route or, or a safety zone to get to or you can't get to it so that's a, kind of what was going through our minds as we're,
0: we're going down there that's what i was going to ask is the problem now that you're getting so deep into it and you're getting farther and farther from the escape route in the safety zone that you're starting to and you're and you're surrounded by more and more brush that you've cut up that that's starting to get some concerns
2: yes and paint the per- picture further as we're heading down basically it was straight down for about 400 feet and then it kind of contoured along off of the top so we're going counterclockwise around the fire and to our left is the fire and all it's doing is creeping along underneath the oak brush the gambles oak brush and twigs and leaves just burning the ground it's not it's not a clean burn at all it's not good black, as we say in the, in the firefighting world. It just wasn't burning. It just wasn't in the canopy at all. Everything is just really green, brilliant green. It may be right where we are digging, maybe one foot flame lengths here and there. Just smoldering is what it was doing. So we're tight lining. We're going right up against the edge of the fire to keep it from spreading any further. When's the moment that you realize man this is this is not working It was working, okay yeah. The trepidation we had was happening all along, and then at one point on the other side of this little spur ridge that we couldn't see on the a, a tree, a juniper tree had flared up. We kind of refer to it as p j pinion juniper fuel type that it just had, just happened to be one one of those trees out there, and it flared up. We couldn't hear it, but when a tree goes up, it sounds. It always sounds like a lot more than it is, but we could see smoke and hear it. And, it sound, and that's when a lot of us were just like, okay, here's our excuse. We've kind of lost this. And we kind of naturally started heading out. And Dale Longenecker, he was the one that was scouting the line. And he was up there and he called back, said, no, it's just a single tree. And he called a helicopter in to do bucket work on it. And it knocked it down. So we ended up heading back along that. And was like, oh, sure enough, it's just... It's just a uh, kind of a day in the nineties, July. So it was hot. I mean, it wasn't pleasant work, but you know, that's what we get paid to do. You know, you just pay your dues doing stuff like that. And we're heading along doing that. And I'd say about an hour into doing it, something like that. And uh, the Prineville hotshots showed up nine Prineville hotshots came down and joined in with us. And we were trying to figure out how to integrate with them. So already we have a mixture of jumpers from different bases. Now we have half of a hotshot crew show up and we try to figure out how to work them in with us. And at first we were kind of dealing with them and stuff, and then we finally figured out, oh no, okay, let's just send all the Sawyers, you know, the, the people running the chainsaws and the swampers, just go up while the all the jumpers be doing that with the Primeville Sawyers. And then the line digging machine of the Pineville Hotshots would come behind us. And when us that were doing the swamping, I was doing that when we'd run into the saws then we'd kind of work our way back to the digging part of the, the Pineville Hotshots. And so we kind of got a real good, efficient machine going along there. And we finally ended up with what's known now as Lunch Spot Ridge. We got out of the brush finally. I want to say it's around two or three o'clock, something like that. And we end up there. And that's the moment everything changed. We went from being in a brush to a different aspect. that was now all pinion juniper trees, a lot of bare ground, a lot of clumps of trees here and there. Some of them has fire underneath. Some didn't. It had already done what it was going to do, burning through there. Was no where or point of putting a line in there. But what was most alarming or confusing is when we got to that spot, there was fire way, we couldn't tell where it was coming from. All we could see was a lot of smoke generally drifting up. It's still hard, hardly any wind at all with us, and just a lot of drift smoke coming up from below us that we couldn't see what was going down way down in the bottom of the drainage. was blocking our view. it's like, uh uh-oh, because we'd just been kind of contouring along, putting our line in generally. And not. we all thought that that's what we're going to keep on doing around the whole fire. And now all of a sudden, smoke's way down below us. And it's like, okay, everything's changed. What are we going to do now? I kind of thought the plan was ruined. You're going to have to come up with something completely different. We kind of just gathered up as a first chance we really had to eat that day to actually sit down. And uh, so we just all started gaggling up and eating. So let's take a break while the, you know, supervisors on this fire come up with a different plan. So you're
0: now at a lunch spot. You're in a position where you now have fire below you, which is bad. And you've got wind coming up, up a hill.
2: Is that right? Or no? No wind. No wind. Yeah. That's what's so eerie about being down there compared to what was going on on the top of the ridge for some reason you know the way the topography works through there the terrain we just didn't get hardly anything down there on the side up on top as it's getting closer to to when the fire blew up they were getting i don't know like 40 50 mile an hour gusts up there they were cutting that line along the ridge top which was our anchor point, and securing that, and throwing brush in the air, and it sail off into the east drainage. Meanwhile, down on the line where we were, hardly anything. I mean, at one point when we were still in the brush, I remember there's a little bit of wind came up, and I'd looked up at the sky, and some clouds had come through, and I thought, oh, maybe that was that cold front It just came through. That's the effects of it, and I guess that was it. One thing I forgot to mention is that morning. Before we got on the plane, after we got that little briefing, and they were talking about red flag warnings, and I had a a Boise jumper come up to me and say, you know, after the briefing is going, man, we've had we've had these red flag warnings every single day, and they just haven't really panned out. Sure, you get winds and it's hot and dry. We're in the desert, you know, sort of thing, and there just hasn't been a you know some big thing that happened. And so that kind of sabotaged a lot of what, and it was true. It was true, but that kind of put us in the back from my mind when that little, you know, had just a little bit, oh, well, came through, did its thing. And it's kind of non-event, just like I was told this morning. And so just went back to work. So it was weird being down there. Once we get to lunch spot and we're up there and there's just, you know, not much going on. But eventually Longenecker went to scout on the other side to, to kind of figure out where the fire was. Cause we couldn't see it we basically went into the smoke. There's these, what's called the double draws. This is kind of side canning coming, coming down off the top. And he crossed that and got to the other side and was looking, checking around over there. And when he went and did that all of a sudden it was kind of in the middle. Of a lot of people I didn't know, you know, it was just, he was the only North Cascade smoke jumper there, that I, the only other jumper I really knew. Everybody else, they were basically strangers to me on the fire. When people talk about a fire blows up, what does that mean? A blow up is when it kind of goes from just a calm, it's just kind of skunking around fire. And usually what happens is wind, a wind event comes in, hits the fire. And all of a sudden, it's going into a huge column of smoke going up. It's almost, I guess, if you can picture it like an explosion. Okay. And so all of a sudden, you have just this giant column going up, you know, like cumulus cloud coming up off of the fire. It's creating its own weather now. It's sucking everything in, and it's just kind of marshes along, and and it gulfs everything. And is that what happened that day? Yes.
0: When was the first time that you realized the fire had blown up?
2: Okay, so when Longenecker went down and was scouting out the fire, and he's the only one I knew around me, and he was gone, uh, and everybody else was, you know, the jumpers were kind of catching up. The Missoula jumpers are reuniting, and catching up above me. Some of the Prineville people were coming up off the line that we just constructed. There was one spot down there, just, a, you know, 20 20 feet off the top of that spurge. uh, I thought I'd go check out that was uh, embers have been rolling. I kind of got bumped off, off of it. I was kind of working it and people came up behind me. And when you do that, people behind you just go bump and you just bump off that spot and you move forward. And as you know, in the back of my mind, it's like, oh man, I don't want to lose this line because somebody got, you know, isn't working that. And I went down there to put in a little cup trench and get embers that might've rolled across the line. And Tammy Beckett from the Primeville Hotshots came up when we were talking. And she said, Well, the plan is my people are going to come in here and improve this line. You can either go back to the lunch spot or bump past the last person on my crew, which would be heading back into that brush. And I went, Well, all right. I was going to head back to the lunch spot, but all her crew were already coming down. And it's kind of steep and narrow there because that, that kind of blocked, you know, I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to be the jumper that kind of just says, oh, let's everybody go by and and then go back and sit at the lunch spot. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go to the other side of your, your group and tie in with the first jumper. So that's how I ended up going back into that brush on that side. And it turned out being a lot further than I thought. It was like a, another couple hundred feet or more almost 400 feet to get back and to, to get to the other, the last person on her crew. And I was like, Oh man, here I am in this crap again. And I got to the last person uh, the last, uh, person in her crew is, uh, Terry Hagan and Jim thrash. He's a McCall jumper. He was right there. And they were just getting done with a lunch break they had. And they were laughing about something as I walked up and he just goes, hey, tell him what you just told me. And she goes, no, 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 no. And, and he goes, well, she thought we were a contract crew. Thought the jumpers were a contract crew because we were all had different hard hats on You because we're all from different bases, different, yeah. different line gear and the whole bit and weren't the most organized crew because the jumpers are kind of independent by nature. And so we we're laughing about that. And Roger Roth came down from the line Back Towards where we'd started from, and he had two five gallon cubies that he was bumping down the line to us, drinking water and five gallons of water that's like over forty pounds each, so he's long arming those things down and that's no that's i mean it's not it's not terrible, but it's not easy right when he got to us is when the winds finally started hitting down below us. The cold front winds had come up the Colorado River drainage and were compressing the air down there. Basically, the air was squirting up the side canyons, and it was that side canyon that we were in, the west drainage. The wind hit the bottom, hit that fire that had rolled all the way down to the bottom. That Longinac was trying to figure that out. Could you hear it? I don't remember hearing it. I just remember, I, and I don't even remember who saw it we just all kind of turned and looked down canyon and saw this column starting up and it was like whoa none of us four had radios but well, we didn't need them we just immediately there was no command there was no we just immediately went well we're out of here and we headed back you know with roger roth in the lead just you know he dropped the cubies and a uh, poor guy just long armed those now down now he's heading back up and so as Roger Roth, Jim Thrash, myself, and then Terry Hagen and the rest of the Prineville hotshots, we were all heading back up towards the, to the top of the ridge where we'd started digging the line.
0: And then at what moment did you realize that you needed to basically escape?
2: Yeah, I thought initially, I thought we were just hiking away from the fire. Here's another fire we lost. Just got to get out of it, out of the way. You know, the, the people I thought were going to be in the most danger were Necker and that group of jumpers that were over there by the lunch spot. That's why people are most worried about. And then pretty quickly, because of that wind, to paint the picture again, we're kind of, you know, we're on a steep side hill in the brush, 12 foot high brush. It's like you're walking through a corridor of brush and every once in a while you could look behind you and get a glimpse of the fire. And pretty quickly realized, oh, this thing's coming at us. Yeah. And we're looking at the side of a column. And when you're doing that, it looks like a wall, a wall of fire and smoke just towering, marching up the canyon behind us, chasing us, basically. And just to clarify,
0: we're still at 6,500 feet. You're still carrying gear. And those kind of fires can move faster than you can run. Is that accurate?
2: Yes. Yes. Especially when it's wind driven. And if it gets below you, then then you have then it goes uphill. Uphill it'll travel fast just on its own, even without the wind. Cause it's going up the slope. It's pre the the heat is pre-treating the stuff ahead of it and just ignites, just go, you know, can race up that. And so here we are. And it's racing through the gambles oak on the live side and then the underburnt side. It's just racing through that equally. And if not faster through the the stuff that had already been crept underneath, but it's just basically the whole hillside it was on fire coming behind us, and we're going as fast as we could along there. It's a freshly dug line. It's not a trail. There's still some rocks and roots. I mean, it's just uh, and so everybody took their turn, tripping and falling and holding other people up. You know, back then some people had. You know, after the fire I said, Well, were, were the women holding you up? You know, some people wanted to know that. No, that was not what was going on there. Everybody was tripping and falling. It was just, well, people thought that maybe some guy, guys were stopping to help the women. No, there wasn't any of that. It was just everybody was hiking along as fast as they could. At one point where there's this, uh, another spur ridge that's just before that final 400 feet to climb to the top, I looked. Back down through, and I saw Don Mackey right behind us. I was able to, as the line compressed, as, as we all got, you know, kind of compressed as we were going up a steep part, I looked back and I was able to see Don Mackey had caught up behind us. He'd ran all the way along there, making sure that everybody had cleared the line because not everybody had radios. So he was doing his job, getting everybody out of there, making sure everybody was clearing out got the word and i remember looking straight into his eyes and you know he'd been running so yeah you know, just a real grimace of breathing hard yet yeah you know, like it's just looking at his expression he's just like get going get going we got to get out of here yeah you know, just concern and so kept going got over that little spurrage and uh, so it's, uh, just at the bottom of the f- final 400 feet to go up straight up the hill jim roth stepped off the left side he was a one of the jumpers right in front of me and roger roth stepped out and he just said shelter that's all he had the wind for we're all breathing hard and i thought he was going to try and shelter up there and i was like whoa i never thought of that talking with one of his friends Years later, his friend, uh, it said, oh, no, uh, he was probably going to get his shelter out, uses of the shield. They had talked about that in the past and it was going to keep running with it. But anyway, so he stepped off the side. Roger Roth jumped out of the McCall base with him. He stepped off the other side, probably wondering what he's going to do. And I just kept motoring. I didn't. uh, It surprised me. I didn't I didn't know either one of them if it had been some North Cascades jumpers that stepped off and were talking, I might've stopped and wondered, Hey, what are you going to do? You know, what are you doing? I'm going to keep going, that sort of thing. And the, uh, investigators, once they figured out the timing and I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, but they said that I only had five seconds to spare. If I'd been five seconds slower to get, get out of there, I wouldn't have made it but just, you know, would have got cooked. So if I'd stopped, I wouldn't have made it. So I kept going and now I'm about 300 feet from the top and there's this tree, reference tree in the reports. It's called The Tree. That's where Brad Ha and Kevin Erickson were. And they're yelling at us, you know, drop your tools, run, that sort of thing. And they were looking right over the top of me at at the rest of the group. I'd already put 50 to 100 feet of uh, space between myself and the people behind me. So who knows what happened behind me? I didn't see it, but it slowed him up enough. And now it's getting steep enough that 50 feet of distance is turning into a lot of time. It's so steep to climb up. I mean, it's getting to the point where you almost want to steep enough that you almost need to use your hands in, you know, in points to, to get up there. i still carrying my Pulaski, you know, my digging tool. I still have my pack on it never even occurred to me maybe to drop that stuff because you know really you need that stuff to to dig a spot to put a fire shelter up or, or anything like that it just never it wasn't taught it wasn't taught at that time it wasn't taught to me at least all this happened really quickly and then i looked behind me you know saw roger roth and i got that same look like a in his eyes and face that I got with, with Don Mackey of concern and breathing hard and everybody was behind him still. So after that, I didn't see anybody. I just went up that ridge as fast as I could, you know, hiking, you can't run it, but you know, climbing up that eventually it got so hot. I'd always thought the same thing that what Jim thrash probably thought, you know, that if I was ever going to use my shelter, I was going to use it as a shield. And so, but uh, I started fumbling for my shelter because it's really getting hot. For firefighters, if you've ever or anybody that's been around a bonfire, you know how if it gets really hot, you can kind of shrink away from it, or just kind of you know you can put your cool up or something, and just just really quickly you know shield yourself from that heat. It was that hot, and it kept getting hotter. And that's when I started fumbling for my uh, fire shelter. I kept moving the whole time got my fire shelter in my hands and when I was opening the package for it, it it fell out of my hands and I didn't stop once I just kept going and they found my Pulaski head you know iron Pulaski head 86 feet from the top so that must have been when when I was going for my shelter about 20 feet from the top felt all the world to me like I got hit by a wave on a beach if you're Ever been on the the ocean and you're standing with your back to it, which you should never do. (laughs) You you always want to face your danger. uh, And it just kind of knocked me off the feet. So I figured, like, I got hit by a gust of, you know, I finally experienced some of that wind that the people have been experiencing earlier, getting to the top there and just caught a gust at that same time. And take this for what you will. I mean, this all happened really quickly and as frantic. So it's the best I've been able to piece together. You know, I either had tripped or I was jumping away from the heat and got hit by that gust. It just felt like I just got slammed to the ground by that that gust. And I got back up. My hard hat had been uh, knocked off. The pack was either the straps had been melted off or I slipped off. And I just ran the final part over the distance over the top of that ridge. My pack was what my the waist belt was holding my pack off. I punched that off somewhere in there i noticed the skin hanging off my hands but it didn't matter i got over i got over that ridge top and all of a sudden it's like somebody closed the oven door or whatever is this all of a sudden no more heat and I, I wasn't fighting gravity anymore and i just ran down that other side tripping falling getting back up again it's pretty steep if there had been a cliff I was so frantic, I might have just ran off a cliff. as in that state of mind. And that's when I ran, got down about a couple hundred feet, and that's when I ran into Kevin Erickson and Brad Ha, okay. who'd gone over before me.
0: And I know that that day, the 14 other wildland firefighters did not survive, did not make the distance and got caught by the fire. How many people ended up surviving that day?
2: There were around 50 firefighters on the fire at that time. And 14 didn't make it. So, unfortunately, the 12 behind me, none of them made it. Okay. So, it was uh, nine Prineville and three jumpers. How bad
0: were the burns once you got to the hospital on you?
2: It wasn't that bad. About 10% of my body. Everywhere my Nomex was tight on me. You know, when I put the, my hands up, yeah. to, I put my hands up to, to block the, the heat. So it was on the backs of my arms, my hands, backs of my legs, my pack kept my back back from burning. It's kind of a knucklehead, and I wasn't wearing my gloves. I kind of had them off for when I was way back when I was working that one little spot. You know, waiting for the plan to develop. Yeah, it was just you know getting embers out of out of there. But in all frankness, I I usually didn't wear my gloves anyways. It's just I I'd spent you know three years on a trail crew, and it was just like. Our mentality is like well if you wear gloves you'll need gloves you know that was my fault my fault that my hands burnt so we're going to go
0: ahead and end um end part one of of this telling and what we're going to do is eric will have a chance to come back in part three and sort of unwrap anything that he didn't talk about or how this comes together the reason that we are doing it this way is because in order for you to understand the training event that, that is the subject of this team cast, you need to understand the precedent that led to it, which was the original South Canyon fire and, and the events
1: of that day. Before we leave 1994, Yes, sir. I had a few things. Yes, please. For the rest of the fire service, when this event happened, time kind of stopped. And anybody in this business in 1994 can remember exactly where they were when they heard about South Canyon, just like people remember Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon or 9 11. And uh, I just thought that was important that uh, it, it's that iconic of an event to people in the business. Thank you for saying that. And I will not add anything to that eloquence.
0: Welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Dr. Preston Klein, joined today by Eric Kipke and Jim Cook. I'm going to now enter into part two of this TeamCast on the Storm King or South Canyon Fire and the emergence of the staff ride that changed the way I think about how we develop young people to face mission critical events. And so I wanna introduce Jim Cook and take us back to 2008. When I first met Jim Cook, I was working at the Wharton School, helping to run the leadership program. And Jim had come out along with a whole bunch of uh, large team to basically talk with Dr. Michael Yusim about the creation of a number of different events, including L580, which is a leadership program, but part of a larger leadership development program for a wildland service. Jim, welcome to the team cast, and and I'll let you take it from here.
1: Well, I think the story of the South Canyon fire and South Canyon staff ride is appropriate here because the event was really a catalyst for changing the way we did business. We sent our best to that fire, uh, local experienced engine captain, smoke smokejumpers, and hot shots. We had a bad outcome and uh, really shook the uh, wildland fire business to its core. As I pointed out earlier, anybody in the business on July 1994 remembers exactly where they were. And South Canyon was a little personal to me because one of the young firefighters that Eric mentioned in part one, Roger Roth had worked for me a few years before. Again, anybody you talked to that was in the business then knows exactly what they were doing on that day. But the follow-up to uh, South Canyon was really extensive. We had a a national review team that looked at how we did business. We contracted an outside entity, TriData Corporation, to do a massive interview process across the country, thousands of firefighters about how to improve what we did. There were editorials about us. There was internal debate. There was a lot of hate and discontent going on. Um, Congress even got in our business as a result of it. Like I said, the impact was huge. Changed the way we did business. Our hiring changed. Our management protocols changed. We developed different equipment. Even some outside entities evolved out of South Canyon. The uh, Wildland Firefighter Foundation was a result of South Canyon. A company, Storm King Technologies, that does fire shelter development and pushed the government to change their fire shelter specs came out of it. And one of the, one of the big things that came out of the, uh, the National Review and the data project was that we needed to uh, change the way we were developing leaders, and it suggested a lot of avenues to do that. And so that's the first time the fire service had ever heard of staff rides. So in 1998, there was an initial staff ride that we did on the Dude Fire. It was a very high-level event. We even had Glenn Robertson, the guy that wrote the staff ride handbook for the U.S. Army Command and Staff School, come out. But there was no follow-through, and it just kind of died there. Then in 2000, I was fortunate enough to be uh, co-lead on a national task group to recommend how to improve leader development process for firefighters. And... uh, Two of the early organizations we benchmarked was Marine Corps University and the Wharton Center for Leadership Development. And we gained a lot of exposure to experiential learning from those two outfits. Some of the things we took away from them was simulation-based training, leader assessments, tactical decision games, reading programs, and again, staff rides. And I think the commonality that all those groups and us found was the need to develop Leaders' ability to gain situational awareness, make timely decisions, and then communicate those decisions. And so we saw the Marines use staff rides for their very junior leaders. And we saw Wharton using those concepts in a non military setting for students. So that's kind of where this story of Eric's expands to uh, the whole fire service. In 2001, we asked Dr. Mike Hussein from Wharton, to collaborate with us, and we delivered the first South Kenyan staff ride. And we had firefighters there, we had Wharton students there, and we had Marines there. And since then, it's been delivered every year, sometimes several times a year, huh, Eric? (laughs) Even through COVID. So it's the longest-running staff ride in the Wildland Fire Service. I think that takes us into the bigger picture, which we were developing a holistic Leadership development program for the Wildland and Fire Service. And we started at the very junior levels and worked up with courseware, reading programs, a lot of things that we borrowed from organizations we benchmarked. And Preston, when I met you, we were at Wharton. We were bringing our very senior leaders to the Wharton Conference. And I think that brings us to that point. Thank you. I I think
0: this is all really important because. When we think about organizational change, and as I tell the people that I work with all the time, you know, humans are our most strategic asset. And if you look at any real change that has to happen, we have to start with the humans. And often that means changing the way we train, educate, inspire, lead. And if there is not a groundswell need to have that happen because of an existential incident like Storm King, and there is not a Leadership requirement, meaning that the folks that are in charge want to spend time and money, people's time and money, to pursue and make it better. If both those things aren't true, it won't happen. And I think why this is important to talk about both the event and then talk about the things that led to the staff ride is to let people know out there that as they experience events, whether it be in medicine or fire or law enforcement or special operations, It has to be collaborative. It has to be, this event has happened. And if we're gonna learn from it, we're gonna have to need the resources and the time and the energy. We're also gonna need the people on the ground to wanna do it. And so I say all of that because it leads me to my experience in 2011, when I went out to the staff ride. everybody. Welcome back to part three of the team cast. My name is Dr. Preston Klein. I'm joined by Eric Kipke and Jim Cook. And now we're going to talk about my experience in May of 2011. So this is many years after the events of Storm King had happened at many years, four years or three years after I met Jim Cook at Wharton. My boss at the time, Dr. Mike Yusim, suggested that because of my research looking at mission critical teams, that I go out and join the staff ride out at Storm King Mountain at South Canyon. I had not met Eric at this point. I'd only known Jim. And um, they said, go on out there. And so I fly out to Colorado. I have the book Fire on the Mountain by John McClain. I've read the book and I've become aware of all the issues surrounding that. It's important that you as listeners understand some background and context here. My background, as many of you know, is I spent four years as a wilderness guide leading expeditions up and down the East Coast, 60 days in the backcountry. And I spent 30 years helping to run expeditions all over the world, all seven continents. What that means is, is that I have a deep training, extensive training in experiential education, that is to say, learning through doing. It's also true that I have an undergraduate at Rutgers, a master's at Harvard, and a doctorate at Penn, which means I've sat a lot of time in classrooms getting didactic learning, having someone just talk to me. And when you're in a mission-critical environment, surgery, a fire, a shootout, whatever it is, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just that if I read the right paper, I'll be able to figure out how to do that work. There's also an emotional component and an existential component. And one of the challenges that I've always faced as an educator is, how do I take a young Preston, Preston who was arrogant, overconfident, young, impetuous, without a lot of prefrontal cortex, and just wants to get after it. How do I get young Preston to understand the nature of the work that he thinks he's going into, but doesn't really understand? So in other words, he knows what it is, but he doesn't understand what it is. And so this staff ride was a game changer for me. It really did change the way I saw the world because it was the first time I had seen a merging of experiential education with with really academic literature. And so basically what happens in this May is that I fly out to South Canyon. And the way it works, if you're not familiar with it, is I get briefed. We hop in some vehicles and we drive out. I think it's I-70 and we park at the base. And the way this works is that, and I try to picture this, is that there's a mountain. But this mountain is a particular, I guess you'd call it a canyon, which is two sort of parallel flanks going upwards. And we're at about 6,500 feet. May, it's pretty warm. And we travel up the left flank. So that we can see the the extent of the entire event of that day. And who I'm with is I'm with a bunch of wildland experienced wildland firefighters, including Eric Hipke. But to be honest with you, because I'm sort of oblivious many times, I'm not making the connection that Eric, my friend Eric, who I've been spending the day with, is Eric Hipke. Like the dots won't connect for me until the moment. So all I know is this very nice guy has been walking around with me all day talking about students and everything else, but I hadn't actually figured out that this Eric was Eric Gipke. So we're sitting there and we're with about, I want to say 60 hotshot, young hotshot crew members. And they're broken up into teams. And basically the way the scenario works is you start at the bottom of the hill and it's sort of time stamped, And so each crew of these young, let's call them, 18 to 22 year old average age folks, right? Think of yourself at that age are there and they're given a card and they're saying, here's the information that they had that day at this time. Do you keep going? And like most young people, they're like, yeah, because we're, we're smarter than they were, and we know more than they knew, and we wouldn't be stupid like that. And so they say yes, and they say yes, and we keep, now we're down, we're no longer on the left flank, now we're on the right flank. Now we're hiking up this hill where Eric previously described in part one where he was, the exact spaces that he was fighting that fire. And we come out to a plateau. And I happened to be standing next to Eric at the time. And all of these hotshot crews had made the decision each time they were handed a card, you keep going. Yes, we do, we keep going. And finally we get to this kind of plateau. And one of the people, and I forget their name, I apologize, said, okay, let's get everybody in a circle. Okay, Eric, can you come out and talk? And I look surprised at my friend Eric, who I'd met that day, like, oh, Eric's gonna talk now. And Eric walks out and as he's walking out, he starts rolling up his sleeves and as he's rolling up his sleeves you begin to see the scars on his arms. The scars that he described in part 1 from the burns that he got that day. And suddenly myself and every one of the students suddenly the the sort of ball dropped, right? Like it was suddenly understood like a bell went off like, "Oh, this is a training, but it's more than that. Something else was going on." And Eric in a very humble and extraordinary way begins to tell the story of his friends and, and the events of that day. And he says, here's the deal. I made all the decisions that you just made, except now you have about eight or nine minutes to get to the top of that ridge. And he points to the top of that ridge or you're going to die. Go. And for me, it was the most extraordinary thing to ever see in experiential education because this wasn't a hypothetical exercise. They were being talked to by the person that survived that day. And so at first being young people, they all were like, what are we doing? It's just, they were laughing, like whatever. But then the instructors are like yelling at them, like go. And so they start tearing off uphill and they're young and they're in shape, but they're also carrying 30, 40 pounds of gear and they're at altitude. And so they're slowing down and they're in about, oh, chest height scrub. And so they're cruising up these switchbacks. People are starting to slow down because they're tired because it's still a training exercise. Until they make the first turn and see the first cross of the first person that died that day. The first cross that was set in the ground to memorialize where those firefighters died that day. And then suddenly it was no longer a training exercise. Suddenly these kids are now, it, it changed, the tone changed. Kids are whipping off gear. Kids are grabbing each other. Some kids are throwing up. Some kids are crying. And I say kids, I don't mean to diminish them in any way. These are extraordinary People. But they're young, they're pre-25, like we all were. And now they're suddenly being exposed to the part of the job that maybe they didn't understand before until that moment. And then finally they get over the ridge and many of them don't make the time. And that lesson, like, hey, you're not as smart as you thought you were. You're no smarter than we were. and But knowing that will increase the likelihood that you'll survive this job. And so this became a thing for me that I've ever since been trying to replicate. I'm not suggesting that all staff rides have this same impact, but I am saying that there is an extraordinary experiential education opportunity in be able to take the elders of your communities and bring them back and put your younger people in the moment where decisions have to be made to help them understand they are not as cool as they think they are. And so I will pause there and open it up to Jim and Eric and say that was my experience it was my experience of working with both of you and how much thought and effort had gone in to developing the younger generation to do better than we did and any thoughts that you have a reflection or corrections of anything I said to make sure that the listeners understand the context of that staff ride
1: for your audience that is not familiar with staff rides what is a staff ride basically it's a Field visit case study. There's a phase preliminary study where people read or view information sources to build a basic understanding of the event. And that's followed by a field visit where you actually go to the site where the event happened, move through it, get to observe it from the uh, shoes of the original decision makers. And it's never the same as reading about it or looking at it on a map. And then there's a third component the integration and that's where everybody that's part of the event verbally shares reflections with the whole group and it's a very powerful piece of the uh, learning in our particular case on the south canyon staff ride we generally had 60 to 80 depending on the year and the format folks on the mountain in six to eight conference groups of about 10 people each of those conference groups was led by a very experienced facilitator. And then we had folks that were on the event. And I want to acknowledge Eric here because he was the first one that stepped forward. Eric, what was the first year you came and did that for us?
2: Probably 2010.
1: Okay. Yeah. So uh, up until then, it had been hit and miss who we could get to come there. And Eric really rallied a group of folks. And now we have I think seven or eight people that were on the incident come every year and recount their experiences. And so we move those six or eight conference groups through that process that you just described, Preston. We get them up on the hill and off the hill in a day. And then we have a dinner at night where we do a very formal shared integration process. So, you know, getting into the weeds on it, you know, a staff ride is shared learning. Your opinions and biases may be challenged um it's experiential you get out of it what you put in it and it's it's education that it can be a, have a training component but it's a primarily an educational event and everyone has different takeaways depending on the background they bring to it the amount of pre-study they did their experience level in the business and so i, I guess that's setting the framework of of what a staff ride is
0: just to add some language here when we talk about as always for our listeners training for certainty Education for uncertainty, experience for proficiency. And so Staff Ride is 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 trying to get at many of these things.
2: Eric. Every year after the fire, you know, 95 on, I'd taken people up there, other firefighters, family members, stuff like that, just to show them what had happened. And then the you know, Jim Staff ride started up, and I wasn't ever able to do that because I was training with the jumpers in May. And so it wasn't until I stopped doing that and finally went on an official staff ride, you know, cause before that, I had just been given basically a guided tour. The first time I went on the staff ride, I was like, Oh, Oh my, that's, that's learning just the breaking up into the groups, just the, you know, putting people on the spot, the whole bit was, and then having them do the run, you know, the, the run that we had to do. And under time and whether they made it or not, I mean, there are people that are, you know, it, it, it affects them greatly doing that, and so that's my kudos to Jim and putting this together and, and you guys because it's very effective. Eric, can I ask when you talk about
0: doing it in 1995 and then doing the staff rides? There's no one listening that's going to doubt that the events of of South Canyon would probably impact you for the rest of your life. And so, was there a benefit? To you personally for doing the staff rides, was it was it helpful to you to talk about it or or was it always a challenge or both?
2: I I very fortunate right from the beginning having to tell people about it, being forced to tell people about it. The unfortunate part was the reason why is because I was the only member that made it out of that group. But because of that, I, I felt obligated to ever ask me to explain it to them and that happened from that first night in the hospital till this very day and that saved me i believe from that kind of ptsd of where when people keep it in and it's just gnaws at them i didn't have that i don't i don't want to say luxury but you know i didn't have that problem it was forced upon me to to talk about it and for years i tried to get the word out there i do interviews you know, videos, you know, whoever, you know, frontline, whoever wanted to talk about it. I was like, okay, here's my chance to get out there. And it never really got the word out there the way I liked it. And so it always kind of haunted me a bit. And then when I finally got doing the refresher videos, those last five years, fire refresher videos, and I was able to convince them to let me do what I'd been planning on doing my whole life is making my own video about, about this event. Because you just can't succinctly or at least I can't sum it up you need to really get out there and then I was able to do the the video and that put me at ease you know 82 minutes of that to finally explain it and to get back to your question about doing the staff rides being able to meet the other people that were on the fire was fantastic it's really cathartic we have a great time talking with each other you know the primeval hot shots and now Steve Little from the hell attack has joined us uh, it's weird to call something like that fun but it truly is it just you know lifts my spirit to be able to go there and
0: be with them have you found that in the action of telling that story yourself is it given permission to anyone else to tell their story is anyone is since then sort of seen you and observed you and then began to tell their story as a result
2: I'd say the biggest one is uh, Tom Shepard. He was uh, the Primeville superintendent, you know, ran the crew. He had kind of the exact opposite experience of me, along with Kim Valentine from that crew, Valentine Lightly. Now, he had to live with his demons. I mean, my gosh, you know, half his crew died. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it haunted him and stayed with him for Decades, well, probably still does, and it wasn't until just before I started making that video in 2013, I happened to be in a fire refresher class and going around the room introducing ourselves, and this guy stands up and oh, I'm Time shepherd yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, and then I stand up and I said, I'm Eric. You know, boom, eyes lock, and he yeah. kind of a nod. You know, like, you know, first break we got together and talked. I'd called down there in the winter of 94, 95, called down to Prineville going, hey, yeah, it was without some worry that I made that call. I thought, I thought, man, these guys must hate me. I left their crew behind to die, or at least they think I did, or maybe I did, and just they got to hate me. But I said, so I think this would help them. I said, I'll come, you know, called down there to, 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 I'll come down, talk to your crew if you want. And it was Tom Shepard that picked up the phone and he was still battling with it. And he went, nah, it's just too early. I don't know. I don't think we, you know, want to do that. And I went, okay. And I just felt like, oh my God, that's exactly, they hate me. (laughs) They hate me. So then we had that first meeting in 2013 after, you know, the introduction at the fire refresher. And he goes, hey, you know that offer you uh, gave way back when? I'm ready to talk now. I'd like to talk nice. to you. And we went out and had lunch. that ended up being four or five hours of talking. And I told him, hey, I'm making the video. Do you want to get on it? You want to be part of this? He said, absolutely. And that's how, where that interview with him came from. And set up that interview in my backyard because I knew he'd need a little privacy to talk. And hit record. And it was three hours of him nonstop talking about it, so I think it I think it might have helped him out quite a bit. So the, you know, Jim, I'm going to turn to you in a second because when I think about
0: the way you guys constructed staff rides, I think there's many levels to them because there is this idea of eldership, which we've certainly talked about in this in this teamcast and in in our research, where the elders of a community that have lived through hard things have a responsibility to help the younger folks make meaning of it. This idea of the narrative of there are some people that are authorized to tell a story. And to Eric's point, there are some people especially if you've lived through an event together where you're the only ones who are going to understand, fully understand the story. And sometimes you need to get together with those people just to share that story because you know you're the only ones that are going to understand it in its complexity and its entirety. And so what I find so extraordinary about these staff rides that Wildland Fire runs is how many different dimensions it is either intentionally or unintentionally hitting on. So I just wanted to get you to any thoughts you might have on that
1: a couple thoughts there, Preston. I'm going to go to the narrative part first and and tag off a little what Eric was talking about. So we've had several of the folks from the Prineville crew migrate into the event over the years. And to a person, they've all stated that coming there, telling their story to people has been a cathartic event for them and powerful and positive. I know Eric alluded to it, but you know, when we have the folks that went through the, the fire come back and get together, they learn new things about each other and what happened that day every time. I mean, even 25 years later, they're still sharing discovery epiphanies about who did what, where somebody was, all of that. So what that is, is a lesson to our students, and we talk about that, the participants, that no report that's done in 45 days or no book that's done in two years or anything like that can tell the whole story and they always need to study these things from multiple perspectives with an open mind. Going back to the different dimensions that the staff ride can address in eldership. So I'm a big advocate and I think they're one of the most powerful learning events you can have for first responders. You can integrate several experiential techniques into a single venue. You know, you have firsthand storytelling. Storytelling is really powerful powerful learning tool you have immersive role play tactical decision game things that put people in the shoes of the original decision makers put them on the spot facing the same dilemmas so you know that role play and you can roll in experiential drills that test the participants preparation we've I've seen these where they've done of course we do the uh, the escape route run I've seen it where they've do shelter deployment drills in it I've seen it where they've do structure protection size up. I've seen them where they do initial attack size up. So you can roll in true tactical preparation drills. And another dimension you can roll in, and we do this with more senior people is, you know, Socratic give and take discussion groups. So all of those different techniques you can you can integrate into this. And you know, I think one of the things about and you talked to it early in uh, the introduction is, you know, wisdom and sorrow, right? How do you how do you make that happen? you know the foundation for good learning is having a way to create an emotional hook and i don't think too many things do that better than a than a staff ride i
0: think it's amazing I, I you know one of the best advice i got early in my career was certainly working with the teams was by legendary navy seal named bill king and and jody randolph and it was actually after we had lost some friends in combat and i was there at the memorial service and like everybody after these events you'd be sitting around in small huddles and people would be trying to make meaning of it like how that happen? why did that happen all these things and one of the things Bill King said to me, he says, hey, Preston, just be careful of that because you can actually never know the in all of it. You can never know the untold story. And in your efforts to want to just be get like, oh, this is why you're misleading yourself a little bit. And so you have to get a little more comfortable with the idea that you just may never know the entire of the story. And, and in this business, I found that to be more true than anything. And that conversation, Jim, that you were referencing about, Hey, look, this is complex stuff. And it, and we're not going to know everything. And we need to be just comfortable with that while at the same time being at peace with the events of that, of those, of those events.
1: One, yeah, one of the things we talk about is the myth of the one true story. Yeah. You know, you have 50 firsthand stories there. You have 100 secondhand responders that showed up in yeah. that next 24 hours. And then you have thousands of oral histories of the people, just another ring around the bullseye. And so I always fight against the fallacy of the one true story.
0: Yeah. There's a great quote by Cahil Gabran that says, never say I have found the truth, only say I have found a truth, which is just a great sort of thing to think about. Where I'd like to take you both now is is sort of where we began, which is all of us were 19 once, right? All of us knew everything. All of us were confident and and fit and smart and talented and surrounded by the best friends we'll ever have. And we all thought we'd all pull it off, no worries. And then we met some graybeards, right? And they were like, hey, boys and girls, take a deep breath, right? And just stay on my right shoulder because there's some stuff you may not know. And I think that distance between novice and expert, that distance between old and young, that distance between known and unknown and knowledge and understanding can sometimes be just enormous and quite scary for those of us that have been through it. And so as you think about your experiences over the years developing young people, where do you think people should focus or what advice do you have for folks that are facing that gap and want to tighten it up? They want to do a better job at developing young people to, to understand the world they've not yet experienced. And you can take a minute just to think about that. It's a big question. And I'll say it with all humility, I'm still working on that question. But I think that this staff ride goes a long way towards it
2: yeah this is why I brought jim on' yeah. he's got he's he's a he's a deeper thinker on this i I just have experienced this from the uh the staff ride level and that well okay I'll go back to making a refresher videos I really like doing the case studies and South County was certainly one of them because it that's the way I like to teach people by put in and that's what a staff ride is you basically take them through what happened to these people and they get to experience it. And certainly if you can go to the site, that's even more of it. But if you watch the video, you get to experience it from the people that were there without having to get burns or almost dying yourself. And it kind of scares you into thinking about it at that, that level, like exactly. Like I was at I mean, going into this fire as that guy that, even though I was 32 years old on this fire, I was still thinking like I was in my 20s. I'm immortal. I, I, I'm always going to be smart enough to get to get out of this. I'm never going to have to use my fire shelter ever, you know, because I'm not going to ever let that happen to me. And then here I was uh, on the fire. And that's kind of, I want to instill that, burst that bubble for the students.
1: Jim? Yes advice that's that's a dangerous path to go down but uh, you know an observation i think it's really important for firefighters to be students of leadership and followership as well as students of fire and i suppose you can extrapolate that to other endeavors right but in our business we all grow up being very focused on learning about the fire environment how the fire is going to behave you know the enemy right mm-hmm. but it's just important i think to understand the social environment on a fire because when you're mixing assets in uncertain or chaotic events and multiple leaders are there trying to make you know effective and cohesive decisions, understanding that social environment may actually be more important than the fire environment.
2: To dovetail on that, yeah, Jim reminded me of the social part of it. When you get a mix of people that you're unfamiliar with, and certainly, I mean, that's why this fire was kind of a... A uh, watershed moment, because there were every type of wildland firefighter on this fire, smoke jumpers, hot shots, hell attack, engine crewmen uh, hand crews were all types around on that and from different agencies, different states. and I truly believe that if it just been one entity on this fire, if it just been the hot shots, or if it just been the jumpers, any one of those groups alone or even Ryerson's you know the Bonco's crew, they would have uh would have just said, we're not going down there. We're not doing this. We're gonna, we're just, you know, we're gonna do something. They would have been able to pause because the fire got bigger overnight between the fourth, fifth, and sixth. It got way beyond what the people that were sent there to fight it with that amount of personnel to 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 do anything about it. On the sixth, it needed to be backed off and just started from the road and thought of a whole different way. But that's not where we were. We had people that were already on the fire up top. Everybody was coming in to the top. Hell spots were being put on a top. You're hiking to the top. They're jumping in on the top. So everything was started from the top down. But if any one of those groups had been there on their own, they would have been able to fight the social, like the stigma of, of not being that group. You know, this group said they didn't want to fight the fire. You know, how weak are they? The hotshots want to fight it. the Jumpers don't. What a bunch of whiners, that sort of thing. And that's what you have to recognize. I, I'd almost say it's impossible to overcome. But if you can recognize that when you're on a different, if somebody's on a different fire, different event, and you re- realize that this is just being driven by machoism or whatever you want to call it. We need to just look at this rationally. And that's why I'm proud of being able to do these staff rides because I'm thinking, you know, if one person can use this staff ride and be on some fire that's starting to go haywire and they can throw this up as an example and they can change the course of events on that fire to save people as like, man. Wow, this is worth if it just one person's able to do that all these years of doing these staff rides it's totally worth it. <laughs>
0: So just to put a bow around that and just for our audience, you know, we we talk a lot about the fact that culture eats strategy for lunch. And we also talk about the emergence of what we're calling tactical swarms, which are these groups that come together from different groups that suddenly swarm together to solve a problem and how much harder it is to build that kind of non-intact team, that cross-functional team than an intact team because you have not established those cultural norms and you can often default to myths or or legends that aren't actually true and you have that diffusion of responsibility they talk about is is to who's really the one that can sort of plant the cultural flag of, of whether it's masculinity or or hard worker, or whatever the cultural anchor is, and say, hey, we're now moving into an area where now we're just being dumb. And we're being dumb, not intentionally, but unintentionally. And who has that voice? And that is becoming increasingly important to be able to be really, really clear about. And the other thing I will say before I open it back up to Jim and Eric is that Jim talked a moment ago about being a a student of leadership and a student of followership and a student of FIRE. And one of the things they're finding right now, I just came to an event looking at this, a think tank looking at this, is one of the indicators of suicidal ideation that's happening across the teams worldwide is a fixed mindset is is a mindset where this is true this is not true and this boxing in of thinking where you give up the beginner's mind you give up being a learner you be, give up being a student and you and you settle into this belief that you know what truth is and so, what I would just say to all of everybody's listening is just check yourself. If you find yourself saying, oh, well, this is true and that's not true, just take a minute, right? And work on your neuroplasticity and just investigate some counterfactuals, investigate some other ways of thinking. It'll keep you alive longer. So, the thing I want to close us out with is this. And I'm speaking now to all the trainers out there. We live in a life right now where there's a lot of pressure to create emotional and existential safety and security for our students. And so what's happening is, is that we're doing more and more simulations in fire and medicine and other places where they're, they're rote academic exercises. But what I can tell you is, and this references back to something Jim said earlier in the teamcast about the emotional hook is that these transitions from novice or beginner to expert isn't just a journey of, it's not just an intellectual journey. It's not just a journey of reading more papers and knowing other stuff. It's also an emotional experience of maturing. It's also an existential journey of identity. Who am I? Am I really this person now? And if you're going to run simulations, you need to do it with the intentional, authentic use and appropriate use of emotion. The appropriate understanding that these are real events by real people that are flawed and not perfect. And by doing that, it can engage and allow those students to engage in it in an authentic way, and not just an intellectual way, but to embody the entire experience so that the lesson goes deeper than just, oh yeah, when this happens, I should turn left. And so I really want to applaud both Jim and Eric for coming on and talking about this. And I will I will just begin to end us here by opening up the floor and just say, as you look back on these experiences from both living through a tragic event to then turning it around and turning it into such a rich and extraordinary educational experience, for those out there in, in special operations or or other worlds, those people that have lived through extraordinary events and want to turn them into a lesson for the younger folks coming up. Are there any advice that you'd give them to think about on Monday morning?
1: I've uh, had the opportunity to help a number of groups develop staff rides, and and there's always an enthusiasm for that with a core that was close to the bullseye of that event. In the uh, effort to move forward with that case study learning environment, there is a, I don't know what you want to call it, a cooling off time or a reflective time, I think, Somebody needs to give the group and themselves between when it happened and when you step off on that. I've always said it needs to be one organizational generation, five to seven years before you go back and really start asking people to recount their events in a formal setting like a staff ride. We've done it a couple times earlier than that, and it was very difficult to get it to be anything more than a memorial move it from a memorial into a learning environment. So there, there, is a, there is a reflection period, I think. And South Canyon hit it pretty well. We did it in 2001. That was, what, six, seven years, right? When we tried to do the first staff ride on it, formal staff ride. And I think that's, that's five to seven years is kind of a sweet spot to step off on some, one of these events as a staff ride. Right,
2: Eric? After after this fire, they came up with LCES, which is a really quick acronym that kind of is really good simple catch-all lookouts, escape routes, communications, and safety zones. So we on this fire, we were one out of four on that. We didn't have any of that. And then a the safety zone was pretty much ineffectual. So we didn't have any of that. So it's a really easy acronym to kind of keep in your mind, to just bring up when you're on a fire, and just think, "Hey, is all this is this, all this is in place?" And and again, you know, like Jim is saying, you know, uh, you'll you be a student of fire. Or You were saying also, read read these reports and figure out, you know, just what can happen on a fire. I'd never been to California. I didn't have any experience with brush and then all here all of a sudden here I was in it and I hadn't really uh studied up on it I never thought I'd be in it and uh, you know Mike Cooper he was on this he was a McCall jumper on the fire he had a great simple quote about this fire he said I don't think anybody was necessarily surprised about what happened on this fire but we all were surprised at how quickly it happened that was a weather thing that we weren't paying attention to like we should have didn't give that the respect i mean just you know you got to expect unexpected but you know that's hard to do so i mean you just gotta have to keep your head on a swivel on any fire you're on or any event you're on and just for people in general wherever you're working you know your uh supervisors and workers sometimes that worker that's kind of quiet they might have some information that that you might really need so really foster that two-way conversation if you can. I know it's really hard when you're in the heat of work or battle or fight and fire, or whatever it is, you know, to, to get that going, you know, because you need, you kind of need that hierarchy to do. But if you have that luxury of being able to really take the time to listen to people, like when we were digging on that line, we were, we were just down there with the brush started getting higher, didn't feel right, didn't feel right, we couldn't put our finger on it why why we sh- shouldn't be there but just didn't feel like we should be there and we should have been having a more frank discussion with mackie about that so foster that two-way conversation whether you're a supervisor or a worker and it's kind of on the supervisor to foster that communication
0: thank you any closing thoughts from either of you before we start to i wrap it up
1: Preston president just wanted to thank you for uh taking the time to uh roll the uh, staff ride concept into your, uh, mission critical efforts. I think it's a, it's a great tool and I think it fits well with the endeavors that, uh, you guys encompass with that effort. Yeah. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having us. And thanks Jim for coming on and being a more, uh, knowledgeable voice about the staff ride learning part of this.
0: Well, like, it's a passion. Yeah. I I can't thank you both enough. I think it's extraordinary. It's humbling to me to have you both with your many years of experience come on and talk about this. And I guess we're all close is, is what Jim just said a moment ago, which is we spend a lot of time with our instructor cadres talking about how to transmit to students what right looks and feels like, what wrong looks and feels like. And that sometimes is the hardest thing. But when Eric just said, you know, something didn't feel right, that's the kind of thing that will make the difference over and over again if communicated well will make the difference but developing that ability to kind of know this is what right feels like and also this is what wrong feels like being able to articulate that is is a superpower and i just encourage everyone to listening to spend some time asking themselves how are we doing that on monday how are we helping our students and our instructors discuss what right and wrong feel like and look like, and how do we have a language around that? So thank you both once again. This has been the Teamcast, and uh, thank you again for listening.
2: Thank you again for listening to our team cast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a mission-critical team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Rowe Productions for helping us produce the Teamcast. Have a great day.